1: This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes.
2: All right. Yeah, I know. This is Dumpty Dum, sponsored by Managers.
3: <laughs> this is Dumpty Dum, the show about the reality drama centred on Ambridge in the heart of the Midlands. I am the ferret warrener, who's known as Purple Pumpkin or Theo Bloom, and I'm here today with the biosecurity risk, who is
4: Stephen Bowden.
3: We are, of course, joined by all the villagers visiting our fate, and that's you, our lovely caller-innerers, email-innerers, and WhatsApp-innerers.
4: For this episode, we have nine caller-innerers. We hear from Lee from Cookham, who is loving the Brad and Mia romance. Witherspoon, who is calling from the UK to bemoan the Brad and George setup up at Ambridge View. European Richard, who calls twice from two different European locations and has questions about sausage rolls. Bernadette, who also calls twice to talk about George. Richard Biffo Prop, who also wants to talk about George. There's a bit of a theme developing here. Melly McMerriweather, who has been looking back at the past. Christopher, who is wondering about the cricket. Steve, who wants to come to the defense of ferrets. Our Sue, who knows about glioblastomas. And Tracy from California. We also have an email from Lillian McCarthy. Who has views on Sausage Rollgate and that strange call from Rob's consultant?
3: And of course, we have Tweet of the Week, which this week comes from Jen, better known as Ambridge Pony Club. And this week's social media roundup is from Ben from Shanghai, who's making his debut.
4: But first, let's look at the week in Ambridge from our suey, Queen or Tart.
5: Hello, my lovelies. It's Suey. Queen O'Tart on the Twitters here and another week in Ambridge. Hey, my word, what a week. I imagine plenty of people will be hosting a party on Saturday night to celebrate the news that George Grundy got his comeuppance. Oh, I do hope that George doesn't end up holding a party at number six, the Green, after Brad told him that he would not do so. I've got a bottle of fizz we will be opening. In other news, Lindy Bottom and Joy have been watching far too many mid-afternoon mysteries on UK Gold and CSI programmes on Channel 5 Extra and had been investigating the Grundy's world of ferret plans for the village fate. Lindy Bottom started quoting every acronym she knew to Fallon, who is, not unsurprisingly, doesn't watch police procedural programmes with Harrison. Fallon has tried to get sausage boy Tom to talk about a long-term lease on the tea room and it sounded like that had been given the green light on Monday. But by the end of the week, we were back where we started with no change until Tom and Helen get time to talk. Doesn't sound like that's going to happen any time soon. Harrison didn't get the wildlife job, but Fallon encouraged him to explore, reducing his hours. I wonder how many of us got Fallon jump ship and moves her entire business to the EV charging station on our Buzzword bingo cards right now. Misogynistic incel George took every opportunity to be vile this week. He argued with Brad, which ended up with them getting paint on Susan's attire. This did not go down at all well. Then he failed to do his job at Barrow, was incredibly rude to Hannah, and then he got the push for gross misconduct over a sausage roll wrapper in the staff area bin. George stopped just short of accusing Hannah of planting the wrapper to frame him. Hannah got quite indignant, and then Neil dismissed George on the spot. Angry Neil is magnificent. The grundy end of the family got on their high horses and there was much pouting and asking for him to be given another chance. Neil pointed out the truth about George, pulling no punches, particularly how many written warnings he'd already had. Emma and Susan blamed Neil. Emma took her bat home. Neil ended up leaving the room in tears. George has been driven back to Grange Farm so Brad can at least have a room on his own. Hurrah! The two of them had another chat where George wanted Neil and Hannah to apologise to him. Fat chance. They then broached the subject at the night of Grey Gables, and some apologies were made. Pip and Stella had a heart to heart after a cold swim. Then broke open wine. They both turn out to want to have a partner in a farm. They suffer for the wine the next day, and then had to round up sheep. Sound like someone going to spiritual home must have left the gate open. It seems that Kate may be getting a visit from Stella. That's going to be a fun conversation. Please don't have it on Saturday. Helen got a very strange data-breaching call from a consultant surgeon in Hampshire, a neurologist or something. Who thought it would be helpful for Rob to have someone with him to keep him calm? (laughs) That's never worked before. Helen is still listed as his emergency contact, apparently. Of course she shouldn't go. But of course she did. And is there when Rob received the news that he has a glioblastoma, which is a terminal diagnosis. It's now just a matter of time before Rob shuffles off this mortal coil until next week then my lovelies and i hope it's a good one
4: so theo before we get on to discussing our weeks in ambridge i think it's probably worth just telling people how long we've known each other given the picture that i put up on the facebook group earlier in the week so we met each other for the first time back in the early 80s
3: yes we were both at a formerly women's college that had admitted men, I suppose,
4: three or four years before you, you. arrived, Stephen? No, only, I was only the second year of men at Girton College, Cambridge. Yes.
3: And I i was a much younger person, a couple of years below you. We met and there is a photo, photographic evidence of those times of us punting. I'm not sure which of us has changed more, but we don't have the same colour hair. I wouldn't be seen dead in a in a top made of an old flour sack, and I'm not sure if you still wear white jeans very often.
4: Not very often, but not never.
3: But I will say that when I re-met you through Dumpty Dum and saw that you were posting lots of cocktails, I remembered that you were the first person who ever got me drunk on martinis, which seems somehow appropriate to your current cocktail lifestyle.
4: Yes, martinis were my cocktail of choice back then. I've broadened my repertoire somewhat since then. But anyway, let's go to our thoughts about the week in Ambridge. What what have you picked up from the last week?
3: I found it very engaging this week. I definitely wanted to know what was happening. But I have to say, I found it quite irritating as well. I think I'm never that keen on when the Archers does comedy. But also, there was so much of the setup this week that seemed unnecessary. I mean, who would put Brad and George together in a single bedroom? We had to have Neil decorating another one to make that possible. Fallon racing so far ahead of herself that she advises Harrison to go part-time before she has a new contract herself. And of course, all the stuff around the brain tumour. As Sue said, the, the strange phone call which had some people on Twitter, believing it wasn't really a doctor. But the strangest thing about that doctor to me was that with a man who has three times had seizures, she lets him walk out to drive himself home.
4: I know. We can talk about that on the back of uh, Lillian's email, which she raises that particular point. The bit of comedy I quite enjoyed this week, even though it was thoroughly over the top, was Linda and all her police references to chizzies and UCOs and everything that you might get from watching too many episodes of Line of Duty and all these other programmes that use those terms.
3: Yeah, Linda is definitely one of the people who can pull off comedy. Although again, why doesn't she just confront Eddie instead of needing to do quite so much investigation beforehand? But that's the storyline. So there we are.
4: And we've got calls about all of that coming up. So shall we move straight into... Our first call, but only after this.
6: Hello, Ambridge 3962.
4: I'm going to play our first two calls back-to-back because they cover very similar ground. The first is from Lee.
7: Good morning, it's Lee from uh, Cookham. i six walking the dog in the morning. This is a very quick one, just to talk about Brad and George and how... The whole storyline is extremely irritating. I don't believe there's any way on earth Tracy would have put Brad at Susan's to share a room with George after everything that's gone on with Brad and George. I really dislike George, by the way. But yeah, it's just the whole... This painting with Eddie and that slapstick, super predictable. Oh, oh, what's going to happen with the paint and the paintbrushes? Oh, it's going to go flying in the air. Oh, Susan's covered in paint. I just felt... Very insulted from the scriptwriters. And I know you shouldn't take things too seriously. And that it's just a silly storyline to make you laugh. But it didn't make me laugh. It made me cringe with the predictability of the whole event. Anyway, I'm really loving Brad and obviously Chelsea, but it's not Chelsea, is it? It's Mia. Brad and Mia getting together. Very sweet. I really hope that storyline grows some legs and uh, we see them progress and get together. So cute. That's it. Thanks for the great podcast. Bye. And
4: then we had another call. Not this time from the upper, lower, east, west side, but from closer to home.
8: Hey, baby, I hear the blues are calling toss
1: salads and scrambled eggs. Mercy. Greetings, Stephen, Purple Pumpkin, and all Dumpty Dumbers around the world. It's with a spin and a handsome husband here in the UK. Angus Haggis is with my nephew in Brooklyn. If you're listening on Sunday, we're at the Bull. Really, but it's in Woodbridge, not Ambridge. I'll look for Jolene and Kenton in any case. If it's Monday, I'm in London. Remember, join me and others at 5.30 p.m. at Dirty Dick's for a pint. If you can, add your name to the event RSVP on Facebook. That would be great. The address is 202 Bishop's Gate near Liverpool Street Station. Now, a word about Brad and George. Note, I did just see similar thoughts to mine on Facebook, shared by William Nolan and Clara Asbury. The three adults, Tracy, Emma, and Susan, made a bad decision, although we actually haven't heard at all from Emma about this. I was especially disappointed with Tracy, who is usually in tune with Brad's emotional needs. Why would she have agreed to send him into the lion's den? Oh, sure, a sensitive son of mine spend 10 days sharing a room with someone you are not talking with, who lied to and betrayed you, and who gets you in trouble. That last item didn't take long to come home to roost. I guess Tracy was all wrapped up with wedding planning to take the time to consider not just about how Brad would feel about staying with his cousin, but the consequences of it. Anyway, how will all this play out? Will it drive a larger wedge between the two young men? Will they have an emotional come-to-Jesus moment? I doubt that. Or will one of them wind up saving the other one's life in some dramatic moment? Stay tuned. Talk to you soon, a few of you very soon. I think you're
4: going along to that meet-up, aren't you? I
3: hope to do so, yes, absolutely.
4: Unfortunately, it's a bit too far for me to get to from home, and I've got meetings in the afternoon I can't get out of, so sadly I won't be there.
3: Yeah, I I have meetings that end up five o'clock, but I shall be running out to get to Bishopsgate.
4: So, Brad and George, what do you think of that setup?
3: I completely agree with both Lee and Witherspoon. It's hard to believe Tracy would have done it. It's hard to believe Neil had to decorate that other bedroom just when Brad was coming to stay so that the two boys have to be in a single room. And it still baffles me that Susan joins Emma in willful blindness about George and how awful he is. (laughs) A lot of people suggested that Brad could have been left home alone at his age, sort of 17-ish. And I can see maybe Tracy wouldn't have wanted to do that. But it did just seem a rather false set-up and unlikely from Tracy, really.
4: I think that's true. Brad is pretty mature for his age. He's a sensible child. He's in a village surrounded by family, friends, people who know him. So number six, The Green, is only a few doors away from number one, The Green, where Hannah and, and uh, Johnny live, if Johnny's ever there. So they would keep an eye on him. Ambridge View looks over the village, and as the name suggests, and so they could see if anything was going seriously wrong. It seems to me much more likely that Tracy would have left Brad at home, even if Chelsea had preferred to go off and stay with her friend. Was it Keisha?
3: Keisha, or as Ambridge Pony Club dubbed her, Quiche, which is a much nicer idea. Given that we're talking about sausage rolls, we might as well talk about Quiche as well. I did wonder whether the whole setup. With George and Brad will turn out only to be so that we can hear some defence of it wasn't George who put the sausage roll wrapper in the bin at Barrow, but we'll hear more on that front later as well, I think.
4: We will. And of course, the other thing that uh, Lee mentioned was the Brad and Mia relationship. How sweet that was. I think I said last week that I was a big fan of it, and I thought that it was very sweet. What do you think? Where do you stand on Bria or Mad?
3: <laughs> yeah, definitely Bria. I think, yeah, no, I think it's very sweet. I think it's very nicely played. I mean, as soon as Brad told his mum he feared he'd never have a relationship, we knew one was arriving.
4: Well, the bell <laughs> literally rang <laughs> exactly. As as they said that, and there was Mia on the doorstep.
3: Yeah, and it's and they're both serious-minded. May I say, nerdy kids? I'm a nerd myself, so I say that not as an insult. And yeah, I think they could get on very well. They are sort of very distantly members of the same extended family, but not any blood relation. So I think it's I think it's nice. And long may it last.
4: Yes, genealogically their first cousins once removed, I believe.
3: Step. There's a step in oh, there yes. somewhere, isn't sorry. there?
4: <laughs> yes, not biologically, but genealogically that that way. So even the Church of England permitted bounds would allow them to marry. Uh, But, of course, since they're not biologically related, that shouldn't even be an issue. Yeah. But we've got more on sausage rolls coming up, and the next call comes from European Richard, who is calling in from an airport. European Richard
9: here. I wanted to call in from Lisbon, Krakow, Warsaw, and now Schiphol. And the big question, of course, is where did George get the sausage roll? I don't think he pops into Felbisham to do his shopping. I don't think he gets his shopping delivered. And someone somewhere must be the person who knows where he gets his sausage rolls from because apparently sausage rolls are his favourites. So that is an issue that may help elaborate. From what I can see is uh, Team George, which is Susan, Emma, and possibly Martin Gibson. Team Anti-George is Hannah, Neil, Mia, Brad, Jazza, and Tracy. I'm not sure where Oliver comes in the competition, but I suspect that once Oliver's not. I suspect once Oliver's in, in possession in of all the facts, facts. Clearly, George is in even worse trouble than he is at the moment. Interesting reflecting on George's and Brad's sense of shame and guilt, and how many other characters in the arches can be seen by the issue of do they have a conscience or are they only concerned about how it looks and it's not an analysis of them in detail but clearly George is a shame if anything
4: whereas Brad definitely has conscience and I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop him. And indeed Richard was cut off at that point but he hopped on a train and went somewhere else and called back.
9: Hi, Richard in Rotterdam now. I was musing about shame and guilt and thinking about the issue of labour shortages raising its ugly head. Of course, it wouldn't be appropriate to mention the B word because the big political parties of Britain aren't allowed to mention that. But clearly there are labour shortages now and the B word has been mentioned. And I was wondering if George might be hired to help out on Brian's stuff or Stella's stuff. And then thinking about how other people in the village address that remembering Elizabeth's shameless egging on or appreciation of Vince who'd been out in the Far East trying to bring in low-cost, to him at least, butchers to help with his abattoir business. Anyone who's looked into it, including the Financial Times, knows that the vast majority of people who've brought in on these visas are brought in by dodgy agents. And I wondered if even the horrible human trafficking, human slavery, she could reemerge in the village. I hope not for humanitarian reasons, but clearly Vince doesn't care at all about the means by which he procures people under these agricultural visa schemes. So enough on that. Yeah, I've got so many more things to say am worried about. I did just wonder whether the sausage rolls might not have come from Tom. I'm not sure what the supply chain issues
4: would have been like, but it would be ironic if that were the case. So where did you think that George might have got his sausage roll from?
3: Like a lot of people on Twitter, initially I did find his denials so strenuous that I wondered if it really had been someone else providing the sausage roll. But then... The next day, talking to Brad, he seemed to admit it was his, but that they didn't have enough evidence to sack him and it wasn't fair on those grounds. My guess is the most likely place is either Susan's fridge or the village shop where Susan works. And so at some point she is going to realise that he is indeed a source of sausage rolls.
4: Yes, the village shop seems to be the most obvious source for getting that sort of thing if you're George and... It was, they did point out that it was George's favourite food and if you listen, I listened again to the scene where they find the sausage roll wrapper and it starts with George eating something and saying that it's delicious and what it sounded like he was eating could well have been a sausage roll. So I think that the idea that somebody else did it was pretty far out. I know there were a number of theories going around including that Martin Gibson might have done so But it seems to me if Martin Gibson were to eat a mass-produced sausage roll, which doesn't sound like him, he wouldn't have gone into the workers' recreation room to do that when he's got a perfectly good office of his own at Barrow. And also, had he been at Barrow when they found the sausage roll wrapper, I would have thought that George would have gone straight away and appealed to him against being sacked because it was Martin who got him the job in the first place, overruling Neil's views
3: yes i did wonder about mia who of course has saboteur history and might think that george needed a comeuppance but even so we quite she would need to know about the biosecurity issue know about his sausage roll penchant it just seemed a little far-fetched
4: and she'd have had to get on site which isn't that straightforward yes and i just don't see her planting a real sausage roll wrapper it would be against her vegan principles.
3: Exactly. She'd have to have bought a, a, a meaty sausage roll.
4: Now, Richard, in his second call, started thinking about the labour issues that are going on around the country, but also in Ambridge. So we've had the scene with Stella and Brian talking about the cherries. Not that Stella clearly has much to... She doesn't think much of those cherries. So could George end up being roped into harvest cherries? It's something that he could probably... Do he'd probably hate it, but you never know.
3: Uh, I had the impression that George is not really one for manual labour, which is a bit of a problem in a in a farming village where all the jobs that are available really want your muscles. He he's happy to show off his muscles throwing hay bales around, but not I think to clean out pig arcs and probably not to pick fruit.
4: I think that's probably fair. It'll be interesting to see how he gets on with his hay bale tossing at the village fate and how much money he does raise for Caroline's charity and what that does for Oliver's views of George because so far Oliver hasn't reacted to the news from Barrow. So I think there's another shoe perhaps to drop in the George story.
3: Indeed. If you'd like to call into the show, the best and easiest way for you to record a message or a plot prediction is to go to www.speakpipe.com forward slash dum Don't forget that's a T in the middle. And you'll also find a link in the show notes.
4: Or you can send us a voice note via WhatsApp on plus four four seven eight one zero zero one two eight eight one. And that's a fairly new number for this purpose. Please keep your call to a maximum of two minutes and bear in mind you need to be at least 18 to take part.
3: And we need your help. There are three things you can do. First of all, if you haven't already, please do hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast streamer you use. Secondly, give us a review. It'd be hugely appreciated, especially if it's on Apple Podcasts. And of course, five star reviews always go down well.
4: Finally, the third thing is that you could consider becoming a Patreon. Patreon is a way of contributing to the running costs of your favourite podcast. If you go to patreon.com and search for Dumpty Dum, we would be delighted to have your support. A lot
0: can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom
10: user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: Now, let's go back to our callers.
4: So next up, we have another person who decided to double dip on the caller rating in this week and it's Bernadette. Here's her first call.
2: Bernadette Hawks, Archer's Fan 2015 here. Well... The cat is truly amongst the pigeons, or should I say pigs? From a first look, the tweet-along is somewhat divided as to whether George brought the sausage roll to work or whether he has been set up. I'm keeping my powder dry on that one. In any event, it is reported that George is very dismissive of women and bitterly resents them, particularly those in the role of authority. Some tweet-alongers are hoping for a quick resolution to the George storyline. I doubt that this will be the case. George is the new baddie, and we are watching him develop. It could take years. He could change, but it might take a spell in a therapeutic prison. I may have to call in again later in the week.
4: And indeed, Bernadette did have to call in, and it wasn't much later in the week. I think it was the very next morning.
2: Bernadette Hawk's here, ArcherSpan 2015, calling again because I realise it's now very early on Friday morning and I won't be listening to the Archers this evening. But to, to comment on Thursday's episode, I hate Crow, but I was right about George wanting to have a party. And that has fueled a lot of speculation amongst the tweet-alongers. I think the party will go ahead. And as the Olwyn at Am- Ambridge has said George is likely to put it out on that their social media. So all the kids will turn up, rubbing my hands with glee to see if this is what happens.
4: Bye for now. So is there going to be a party?
3: I don't think so. Surely Brad has made himself evident as sensible now and telling George where to get off. So unless George somehow breaks into the house without Brad's help, I don't think that one's going to come to life. But... Of course, that would be what George would think as soon as there's a a house without adults in it.
4: He'd invite all his friends round, assuming he has friends, all the people that he believes are friends and who might want to sponge off him. They'll all turn up at number six, the green, force their way in past Brad and a shocked Mir, who was over there to watch a Tarkovsky film or two, perhaps.
3: Yes, it's all too credible. I think I've seen a scene very like that on Waterloo Road.
4: Is this some television thing?
3: I'm afraid it's a television show about a school and the bad lads tend to show up whenever there's a possibility of a party or drinking other people's booze.
4: Ah, this must be the Grange Hill of today.
3: It is, it is.
4: I think Grange Hill is coming back.
3: Everything that goes around comes
4: around. Okay, so that was Bernadette. We'd already discussed the issue whether George had left that sausage roll wrapper or whether it had been planted. And as Bernadette admitted, she was wrong to doubt it to begin with but was, was later convinced. Now, next up, we have a different Richard.
11: Hello, everybody. It's Richard Beveridge here, Biffo Prop on the Twitters. I hope you're all well. Sadly, I'm still feeling a little bit more than off the demise of the London Irish first team. However, hope springs eternal next season. So, Miss Ojo George has had the tin tack. It's been a long time coming. I recall he's been abusing Hammer, his line manager, and swinging the lead for quite a while. What i would forgotten was he'd had two verbal warnings, either of which I suspect could have ended his probation period, which I assume he is still in. The biohazard was really the sort of final act. Neil was well within his rights to dismiss him. Gross misconduct, maybe, maybe not, but uh, I think it was a culmination of an awful lot of things. Neil's only fault, perhaps, may have been dismissing George in public in front of someone else. It occurs to me from listening to Wednesday's episode that Emma's been clearly told, if you'll pardon the expression, a few porkies by George about what's been happening because even from what we've heard, he probably hasn't fitted into the world of work. Quentin made an interesting remark last month that in Hannah he thought George may have met his match. I suspect he's very wise to have made that observation. One would hope... Like all teenagers who lose a job abruptly for their own stupidity, George will learn. I suspect he won't. Sadly, I think this will build to his gossip, His conversation with Brad, illustrated on Thursday evening. This will build towards this in-cell storyline. We'll wait and see. Irrespective, I do hope you're all well. Hope you've been enjoying a little bit of seasonal warmth and fond regards to everybody especially Philippa's dad. Tinkety talk. Tinkety Tonk to
4: you, Richard.
3: I think, for me, the incel aspect of George is most evident when he's being rude about Mia to Brad. He is so jealous that Brad now has a girlfriend and he doesn't, that he has to be as rude as possible about
4: Mia too. He was very rude about Hannah, who I think previously he had a, a slight crush on, not to the extent that he had a crush on Fallon, which didn't go well either. But I, I think he really is struggling with building relationships with members of the opposite sex.
3: Yes, except for his mother, grandmother, and certain others who seem completely fooled by him. So he's clearly got one side that is persuasive to people and another side that we all loathe and detest.
4: Yes, that was the people that European Richard called Team George. And I do wonder what it'll take to convince them. I think that. Susan and Emma have now discovered that George was on two verbal warnings already and had presumably hadn't told them anything about that. So maybe they will start to see that actually it makes more sense to believe Neil and Hannah, although getting Emma to believe anything from Hannah I think will be a struggle because they really do not get on.
3: I did wonder why it was had to be Neil who sacked George. I'm slightly forgetting the hierarchy there. I thought Neil and Hannah were sort of peers, one running the inside and the other the outside enterprise, in which case Hannah could have dismissed him herself, albeit it would be helpful to have Neil on board. And so I think to Richard's point about him being sacked in front of another person, it was actually his line manager, and that's probably acceptable.
4: Yes, I would agree with that. And after all, George is only a casual short-term hire while Jazza is off with his leg and now with his honeymoon. So I think that the rules of employment law don't require too much in the way of due process when it comes to hiring and firing.
3: That's probably true, yeah.
4: I just wonder though, George is at the moment set up with no redeeming features whatsoever and I wonder how sustainable that is in the longer term. I imagine that George is going to be with us for the next 50 or 60 years, which is a dreadful thought but that's the archers for you. He can't just be this hideous, misogynistic incel for all that time. There needs to be some depth to his character. None of the uh, other so unremittingly bad characters were actually villagers. They were incomers, the likes of Simon Gerard, Simon Pemberton, Cameron Fraser, Rob Titchener, obviously. Those were all people who came in and then could go away again and we'll, we'll get on to Rob's future fate a bit later on. But George has got to be here to stay, I think. Grundy's don't fall very far from the tree, apart from Mary's sister Rosie, who was a lark in any way. Who went off and to Alf, Alf
3: Grundy disappeared for quite a while. And I think the other person George reminds me of is his uncle Clive. And there are, of course, ways for such characters to disappear for quite a long time at what will now be His Majesty's pleasure.
4: Indeed. Yes, it's the Horrobin part of him showing up as well as the Grundy part of him. Yeah. Right. Now let's move on to our next call. And this is from Melly, and it's not about the current storyline. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everybody in Thumderham land and those who are in Dum Towers.
10: It's Melly McMerriweather calling from an incredibly intricate waste of Scotland just about to listen to the archers on Friday evening but this message does not concern the current archers it concerns my extended current commute due to a road closure and I've been lo- listening to lots of intense BBC dramas so this evening when I came home I decided eh, something lighthearted, hearted totally caught up with dum dum obviously so I went back and I found a dum-de-dum episode from this week three years ago it was episode 337, the 15th of July, 2020. And we were in the middle of Zooms and lockdowns and all that joy. So we had much discussion for Alice in her wine delivery. We had just discussion on the Brookfield lot, so it had been their week for the monologues, or the monologues as some people were calling them. But we also had a call in from Philippa pre-presenting days. We had Witherspoon setting Boyfield straight that he was a psychiatrist and not a psychologist. Fantastic. Welcome to the UK, Mr. Spoons. And then, absolute icing on the cake. Stephen Bowden's first ever caller The first time we all heard that fabulous voice. And, has to be said, probably the most sensible head out there. So, yes, it was all very, very good. So, episode 337. 15th of July.
4: Go listen. Well thank you Melly, for those kinds of words about my voice. I did actually go back and re-listen and I have to say that the sound quality on my call was not great. It was very echoey.
3: I find myself wondering why we have so many loyal listeners in Scotland but I've been benefiting from their advice on Twitter because we're going on a family holiday to southern Scotland this year and I've been asking for tips and Melly has sent me a great number as has Ambridge Pony Club.
4: And we have another Scott coming up fairly soon. Just sticking with what Melly called about, when did you first start listening to Dumpty Dum?
3: I am one of the many from the Robin Helen era. I think that I must have heard Royfield being interviewed on a program about podcasts because I remember that it took me a long time to find that it was Dumpty Dum and not some rock band called Dumpty Dum who I kept being offered up by google and i came in i think we were in about the 30s or 40s of episodes and it really was a, a sort of very important to me during the period of rob's coercive control building up because i found that quite distressing as i know a lot of people did and there was no one in my it, normal life who wanted to discuss it with me and there were occasions when i think i i remember sort of feeling quite worried about Helen and listening to some other people who felt the same way was very reassuring and I did it may be that I joined a little later and then went back and listened as far back as I could but the the archive isn't there I think for the first 20 or 30 shows or maybe it's there now and yeah I became quite a loyal listener way back then and I think probably I know you're not you think the Robin Helen storyline maybe was sucked too much of the air out of the rest of Anverage. But I do think it brought a lot of people to the fan communities, whether that was on Twitter, Facebook, different places, because it was so troubly.
4: Yes, it, it definitely did that. It, it was very important. But you're right, I did feel it rather distorted things. And the follow up to that was that it, it means that. Every time something happened, everybody was saying, oh, is it Rob? Is it Rob? Waiting for Rob to come back. And now, finally, their wishes have come true. Rob has come back. And it's just been a bit weird. I always thought that Rob was much better, in, as, and I've said this so many times, is much better as a fear in Helen's head rather than a character that we actually hear. But we've got a bit more coming up on, on what has happened with Rob. And, in fact, Melly was another one who called back very quickly with her immediate reaction to Friday's news.
10: Oh, me am I. Lie. 1916, I'm an egg lad i got my little call in about old dum dums before that happened. My brain can't even comprehend a, a myriad of ways that this could now go. Popped! Look forward to everybody's call-runners this matter.
4: So on to our next call, which in fact doesn't pick up at all on Rob. In fact, it focuses on a completely different topic.
6: Hello, everybody. It's, it's Christopher here. Before I talk about what I wanted to talk about, I just want to say how much I'm enjoying Stephen on the podcasts. Um, I don't know if he's going to be on this week. Stephen's so sensible. He's so sensible. I, I mean that as a, a compliment. I would really like to have Stephen as somebody I could phone. You know, like a fr- phone-a-friend thing. I could just phone if I had a problem. I feel like he would give me a, a sensible, reasoned wealth. That sounds boring, and it's, but it's not. It's not. A, it, anyway, it's good to keep it up. Where's the trick at Nothing. No, since the last mention we've heard of cricket was was the whole thing about Jim's glasses, and that was it. We're in the middle of the what might become the greatest Ashes series of all time, not one mention, nothing, as far as I'm aware. And then Tracy Swans off on her honeymoon. I am quite glad the whole wedding palaver is over. I mean, I know they didn't actually get married, but I'm quite glad that's all finished because it was quite, it was deeply cringy for Scottish people, although entirely believable. I mean, it's very natural for scots who no longer live in scotland to feel the need to drape themselves in tartan and have photographs of wee jimmy cranky and eat rumble thumps or whatever that is no scotsman's ever eaten that before you know because it's they have a deep insecurity i suppose about the fact that they talk about how passionate they are about scotland and all the rest of it, but don't actually live in the country oh fair enough fair enough it is an odd thing to kind of make it entirely, entirely about one person's nationality at the exclusion of the other person. It's never it so slightly selfish and self centred, but Tracy didn't seem to take it that way. So, um, whatever makes them happy. Anyway, cheerio.
3: I, of course, agree with Christopher that you sound very sensible, Stephen, and have a very nice voice, but I have to disagree with him about cricket. Isn't it a saving grace that we've been excused the cricket on on the archers when it seems to have invaded all the news programmes and everywhere else where I can usually manage to ignore it?
4: I'm with Christopher that this has been a very exciting Ashes series so far. And if England can come back and win the remaining Test matches, it will be the greatest comeback since Botham's Ashes. I'll take your word for that. Of course, yes. This year, we didn't have the single wicket competition. We had the one-off 2020 match between Tracy's Tigers and Tom's Tigers, or whatever they were called. And last season, we had the rather ridiculous seniors games against Darrington, because nobody could be bothered to turn up for the main team. And now, for the rest of the cricket season, it seems to have been totally forgotten. So despite having got 22 people out to play on the bank holiday weekend, they can't even be bothered to to get 11 people around out on a, a regular Sunday afternoon. So... That's one of the classic things about living in a village, the village cricket team, that just isn't happening at the moment. And I I do think that they ought to bring back cricket. So maybe next season they'll get their act together.
3: Maybe some of the youngsters like Ben and Josh and George will, will start playing and that will enliven the team again.
4: Maybe George could learn the virtues of getting on with other people by being a member of the cricket team. If he actually has a talent at cricket... It would be a good storyline, perhaps, to demonstrate that just being a a good fast bowler or a good batsman isn't enough if you're not a team player.
3: Now, I, I I don't want to look as if I've been listening to the news stories, but isn't the story at the moment that someone in cricket behaved rather more like George and less like a gentleman than he should have done?
4: That would have been the uh, stumping of Johnny Bairstow at Lords, which resulted in some rather boorish behaviour by MCC members. But that's not really about the archers. So perhaps we should move on to our next call. Hi, it's Steve
12: here. I've only listened up to Wednesday, so I'm a bit out of date. But I'd like to give my observations on the week so far. So a couple of things. First of all, I had a sausage roll yesterday. And now I'm feeling really bad about it. and I'm, I'm worried I've, I've breached biosecurity somewhere. Well, I work in a shop. But I don't work in a pig unit. But even so, I'm really worried. I'll have to try and sort that out. But number two, most importantly... I think there's been some discrimination this week against a maligned minority group. And I'm, of course, referring to ferrets. I actually had a pet ferret when I was growing up. A little pet ferret called Humphrey, named after the creatures from the milk adverts. If anyone remembers those, they come with a straw from the side of the, side of the screen, the a pinch of milk. And they gave me nightmares. I don't know why I called my ferret Humphrey, but anyway, I had a pet ferret called Humphrey. It was a lovely little thing, Beautiful, really friendly, great ferret, great pet. So I think the... The people in Ambridge that are down on the ferret fest or whatever's going to happen at the fete are um, maligning a great animal group and I think they should
4: have a good time themselves in the mirror.
12: So that's my... Thanks very much. Bye.
4: Jacqueline famously is not a fan of ferrets, although her near neighbour Andrea very much is and there are a few other ferret fans on the Dumpty Dum Facebook group. Where do you stand on ferrets?
3: I was trying to remember if I've ever seen one live and in person. Being um, a Londoner born and bred, we didn't have a lot of ferret keeping in the neighbourhood I grew up in, but I do have a degree in zoology that probably means I'm supposed to know what animals are. I I think I've got a reasonable idea of a a ferret versus a stoat versus a weasel, but I, I really have no opinion.
4: They're fairly common at country fairs, particularly ferret racing, where they go down tubes and through what look like stockings and things like that and the the first one out at the other end is the winner they're quite beautiful animals but they do stink of wee because i think they smear their own urine on themselves for some or other reason they're larger than weasels and stoats they're i think they're domestic polecats so they're the same as a polecat smaller than a pine martin and then within that family, the next one up, the biggest is the badger. I
3: have seen badgers live, and that was very lovely. It did involve sitting in a hide for several hours and feeling like a that I wanted Jim and Robert next to me, advising me on what I could see, but never seen ferrets that I know
4: of. Jim and Robert, and definitely not David when it comes to badgers. Definitely not David. Well, it seems odd that we haven't had any calls about Friday's revelation But this next one definitely is all about that. It's Sue.
5: Hello, it's Suey here, Queen or I'm just going to do a quick call in error, which didn't feel right to put on the end of the week in Ambridge, about glioblastomas. I have a very lovely friend who died from a glioblastoma about a year and a half ago. And it is a death sentence. It is terminal. For almost everybody, 4% of people recover from one and are still alive about five years later. My lovely friend Suzanne was given some advanced medicinal therapeutic product, so uh, more like a vaccine, something like that. And that kept her going for another five years or so. I hope Rob doesn't get another five years. That's probably quite horrible to say, but I hope so. Anyway,
4: cheers. Bye. So Rob didn't take the initial diagnosis at all well. He was clearly in full-scale denial about it, refusing even to listen to it. And I think that his personality type, the aspects that make him so good at coercive control, the fact that he needs to be in control of everything, mean that he's going to feel this worse than many people might because it completely undermines his sense of who he is.
3: I have to say I was quite impressed by whoever wrote the script this week and I I should have checked that they managed to have me feeling a twinge or two of sympathy for Rob because he clearly was given this diagnosis in a way that he couldn't fully understand. He went away to look things up, came back and was told that his version is inoperable, aggressive and that he really hasn't got all that long to, to get his affairs in order. And we saw many of his typical attributes coming out at that point but it, it's still pretty hard on a man who's probably younger than us and uh, there are people getting those sorts of diagnoses i i couldn't i couldn't celebrate as much as i might want to the demise of rob because they ma- managed to make it a little bit sympathetic
4: the credit for that goes to liz john who did this week's writing and so she ranged from that sensitive treatment of rob that as you say made us almost unwillingly sympathetic towards him through to Linda's ridiculous police slang stuff. So a a wide range of talent from Liz John. in Absolutely. Yeah. Now, for a different view on the same topic and a few other things, it's our last call. And that's from Tracy in California.
8: Hello, Tracy from California here. Okay. First of all, this week, I don't know why Fallon even bothers talking to Tom, because he is always going to dial it up to A-hole. He's terrible. It's like, he's so rude. And obviously, Fallon's going to be at the corner, at the, what you call it, charging station. We know that already. And Tom and Natasha are going to take over where the T-ring mm-hmm. is, because that's what they want us to do anyway. They want to expand her juice bar, or whatever she has. So that's already going to happen. Also, WTF is Helen doing, I do not understand, I know all I know is she better not take him home because that's really gonna piss me off. But honestly, when she saw or her, like when she heard about his symptoms and saw that he was behaving the way he was, she should have been like, "Now see there, that's why you got that thing in your head." <laughs> like really, karma is karma is caught up with you, and you would it would behoove you to reconsider your behavior, given the fact that you might be meeting your maker very soon. But of course, she's not gonna do that. But that's. That's what I would have wanted to do. I probably wouldn't have done it either, probably. But yeah, she should have been like, damn, best of luck to you, Rob. That's tough to deal with. Doctor, take me off your mailing list, please, because I don't even know him. <laughs> like, I really don't even know him like that anymore. And and just left. I'm all for compassion, but Helen's doing too much. And I also secretly wished that when she heard his diagnosis, she she would have been like, well, as we say on Bridge Farm, what you reap is what you sow. <laughs> I guess that would have been a terrible place for farm humor. Uh, Bravo to the, I don't know, like, basically, the last thing i say is I hope Helen's application for martyrdom goes through quickly. But bravo to the writers, because they really have you wrapped up in the story. Anyway, thanks. Toodles.
4: I love Tracy's calls, and that was one of her best. Talking about Tom dialing it up to A-hole.
3: Yeah, Tom is a complete twonk, and I agree with Tracy on that front. I'm not sure I really think about karma in those ways rather than poor dumb luck. But I do think that the way this story develops over the coming month that we assume Rob has left is going to be very interesting because you'd have to have a heart of stone to deny him the ability to see his son before he dies and while he's still able to function. And yeah, I think we're going to hear quite a switch to where Helen... She did love him at one time. It's quite hard to imagine saying to someone that you have ever been fond of, albeit someone you later stabbed and took a court order out against, sorry mate, I'm now leaving you to die alone and miserable.
4: It might be quite traumatic though for Jack to meet this man who is then told is his father and to find it's somebody who could quite possibly by then be in hospital receiving palliative care for his glioblastoma and I'm not sure what that would do to him or to to Henry assuming that Henry came along too so that'd be interesting and what will it do to the relationship between Helen and Lee which is already I think under quite a bit of stress.
3: Yes and I think a lot of people have speculated that Lee is on his way to California one way or another so yeah I think it, it is planting some very interesting story seeds
4: for where this goes next we haven't really talked about the uh, the whole fallon and bridge farm interaction as you said tom has been his usual twonkish self about it but do you think there's something going on do you think they have a plan as tracy suggested are they looking to bid for the concession at the ev charging station as a replacement for ambridge organics back in the day
3: I don't actually think they've got a plan. My sense is that we're being shown Bridge Farm preoccupied with Rob, with baby twins, really just not focusing on Fallon and her needs. And Fallon, in the way that she seems well set up to do, really only focusing on her own needs and wants out of the contract with the tea room. I did, as I confessed I'm a nerd, I did look up about commercial contracts because a lot of people on Twitter were saying that her asking for an eight-year contract was ridiculous and nobody would agree to that. Um, And as far as I understand it, and I wait to be corrected by the likes of uh, Glyn or Cosmo if they would like to call and correct me, having a lease that lasts for eight years is not at all atypical. It doesn't mean you have to have the same rent for all that time. And you can also have a break clause maybe in the middle that says either party can give a year's notice in the middle. But there is a particular thing about anything greater than seven years and the tax implications. So it seems as though tipping it from six into eight would have particular financial costs. And you would think that one or other of the parties might consult a lawyer. I know that they don't really like getting professional advice in Ambridge if they can avoid it. But it did seem strange that she would think they would just sign a lease like that with neither side taking any advice.
4: I think the choice of eight years did—it felt a bit arbitrary, but if that is to do with the fact, if there is a cut-off at seven years, then that might well be a deliberate choice and Fallon might know that there is an issue there. Does that extension benefit her or does it benefit Bridge Well,
3: what I couldn't work out is it, it seems to be a sort of version of stamp duty that someone has to pay and... Um, I'm not sure whether that's uh, the owner of the place. I, w- I would assume so, because they're now contracting to get income for that period. But it did seem a very strange number, y eight? And we d- we don't really know how long her current lease is, do we?
4: No, but we also know that it, it isn't due up for a, possibly a couple of years yet. Tom is saying, why are you coming now? And, and she wants to jump in very quickly. Those are the calls but you can also send us an email if you'd prefer. Visit the dumptdum.com website and click the Contact Us tab at the top of the page. Please keep them brief, up to a maximum of 250 words. And this week we had one email from Lillian McCarthy, who tried calling in, but didn't manage to make it work. Hello,
3: Stephen and Theo. I'm sending this in case my call didn't work. I'm very annoyed by the squabbling between Brad and Georgie, as Emma refers to him. Gosh, she really is blinkered when it comes to him, isn't she? Anyway, regarding the sausage roll, I first thought I'd give George the benefit of the doubt, but now I'm convinced it was definitely him and think he got what he deserved. On the subject of the doctor, I'm not at all convinced she really was a doctor, as no doctor would behave like that. I'm very glad Helen stuck to her guns and didn't agree to go. I hope she doesn't subsequently change her mind. And regards Lillian. Mm -hmm. Well, sorry, Lillian. First of all, that was a real doctor, despite behaving in ways no doctor ever would. And, and Helen did decide to go.
4: Yes, it, it did seem a very odd call. And uh, as you say, I don't think a, a doctor would have acted quite like that. All I can guess is that she was so unnerved by Rob's behaviour. He had presumably been incredibly rude to her, stormed out of their consultation and, and headed off and she needed to find somebody who could get hold of him because she was clearly of the view that he had not understood what she'd been saying, and and as we got from the subsequent conversation, she was absolutely right that he had just listened to the bits he wanted to hear, done his own research on the internet, and not actually understood the implications because presumably he was psychologically incapable of taking that in.
3: Yes, and I... I would have thought one of the reasons it was urgent she get hold of him is because he was driving away in a car and was someone now liable to repeated seizures. But that didn't seem to bother her the second time round either. I think, I'm sorry to say, I think removing his driving licence would have been one of the first things they would do.
4: Yes, and if you have fits or seizures, you're supposed to inform the DVLA and you have your licence suspended until you've been clear of them for a while but Rob doesn't strike me as the sort of person that would go through that because he would know better than the DVLA whether he was safe to drive.
3: Yes, I'm sure you're right. I mean, the other thing I found slightly stretching credulity was that Helen said, call Miles, and Miles is away. What happened to Bruce? We heard that Ursula died, but where's Rob's father at this point? Are there really no other family members or anyone else who can be called at this point? So it has to be his ex, extremely estranged ex-wife.
4: Doesn't he even have a GP who might be able to do something? Indeed. OK, so now let's hear what Dumpty Dummers have been talking about on the Dumpty Dum Facebook group. And this week we have a new summariser, and that's Ben from Shanghai.
9: Hey there,
13: Ni Hao. It's Ben from Super Hot Shanghai here with this week's social media roundup. And what an animated week it's been. You certainly haven't held back. Let's get started with what Justine expertly referred to as George and his porky pies. It's fair to say that you've been united in your reactions to the recent sacking of poor little George over the sausage roll wrapper, which may or may not have been his. Other suggestions for how it ended up in a bin at Beryl have included, after some clarification, Bert Horribin and a very complicated string of events following an ill-fated wash cycle. For a while, we mostly all assumed it was poltergeist activity beyond the grave from Bert Fry. Thank you for the clarifications. Other what-done-its include a self-entitled Martin Gibson not signing the visitor's book and, naturally, Brad Mia. Wendy Rowcroft and others praise Neil for his being a straightforward kind of bloke and could not really see him being devious and although the jury seems to be divided on Hannah, Darcy thanks them, writing that she believes that cheers were heard around the world. But sorry George, the feeling in the socials is that you're a toad and a bit of, no sorry, a total cockwomble. Meanwhile, many people remarked on Pip and Stella growing closer following their albeit brief dip in the Lido and subsequent quaffing of too much Malbec, leading to much speculation about where things are heading, with Kate Lyle reminding us that women can simply be friends and that Stella is also texting the woman she met, in Italy. K. Richard Whitbread thinks Pip has not yet realised that she prefers women, but is getting there. And Jonah Titchmarsh waded in with the quite frankly obvious statement, the question is, do any woman prefer her? Moving on, Pip's condescending and brattish ways have continued to ruffle feathers in Facebook land. After Pip squeaks musings on the dreams for her future, Pam Doulet reminded us in no uncertain terms that one, Pip is set to inherit Brookfield. Two, she does have a cottage big enough for her Rosie and her toys and that the child does not live a toilless orphan-like existence. And three, her use of the term box sets was a little outdated and too frankly, quote, please shut up, Pip. Now, from the moment that Helen's phone rang on Thursday, it seemed apparent that this call would be divisive, with Rob Williams exclaiming, Would a consultant really do that? And it seems that you were unanimous in the view that the consultant, the emotionally blind-sounding Dr. Weber, would not have made a call like that, with Suyin pointing out that they would not have time to make the call nor break patient confidentiality. Other comments included crass, Al Williams, very insensitive Ray Milner, and with a soothing voice akin to a Marks & Spencers food commercial. Louise Lawton. Things, however, took a darker turn when Lynn Hall suggested that it might turn out that Rob is suffering from a genetic illness which may have been inherited by Jack. Shock, horror, and who would have thunk it? This isn't just food for thought, it's Ambridge food for thought. Until next time, Dumpty Dummers, Tetian from Shanghai.
3: Well, oh, thank you, Ben. That was a wonderful debut. And thank you to everyone who's posted their thoughts on the Dum Dum Facebook page. At this point, we would normally welcome new members to the Facebook group, but our new member monitor, Witherspoon, has been travelling. So we'll have a double dose next week. So, Stephen, did we receive any reviews this
4: week? Yes, we did. We received two, and both were five-star reviews on Apple. The first one is from Saza 66 and it goes like this my little piece of heaven. Every week I listen to this podcast so I can agree or disagree with what I thought about the archers with other people all around the world. I only discovered this podcast about a year ago and was so delighted I could hear what other people thought and I didn't have to bore my husband about the latest going on in Ambridge. He has no idea what I'm talking about. Nothing new there. Your podcast is truly appreciated. Sarah from Vancouver Island in Canada.
3: Well, that's lovely. And the second one is from Emma Zukowska, who's in the UK. An Archer's Conversation Between Friends. I've been listening to this podcast for about a year and it's become my tradition to listen to the Archer's omnibus and then this podcast. I often agree and sometimes disagree with the views given by both the hosts and the caller in but that's what makes it interesting. I have no one to share the Archers with in real life, but this podcast is a conversation between friends.
4: Well, thank you very much, Emma, for those kind words. You'll also find us under Twitter, under Dumpty Dum. Make sure you include the Archers hashtag using a capital T and A, which helps those using screen readers to enjoy any Archers-based tweets. That hashtag is also your gateway to the tweet-along that takes place alongside the daily episodes and really gets going for the Sunday omnibus.
3: And as well as at Dumpty Dum, we're both on Twitter. I can be found at PurplePumpkin63.
4: And I'm at Wenlock House. And now, let's turn to this week's gongs. Hello,
9: it's Fry here. And now, on Dumpty Dum, it's time for Tweet of the Week.
14: Greetings everyone in Dum Dumland, it's Jen and this week I've been very honoured to be allowed to choose the tweets of the week and I have realised what a, a terrifically difficult job that is because we've had some magnificent tweeting. As Winston Texas tweeted, hashtag the Archers remains a benign and enduring hobby in a troubling world and we're more or less surviving the technical issues of Twitter so do please come back and join us and do please include at DumDy so that you can be entered into this magnificent competition. This week has been a bit of a week of two halves. First of all, we had the scandal over the sausage roll, which led to the magnificent hashtag, I stand with Neil. And I think it was more or less universal rejoicing among the tweet along at the sacking of George. There's some pretty funny comments around the flirtation between Stella and Pip. And then we had the news about Rob. So, in bronze position, I have picked Brian Holding at Buggy Squires. No doubt, there'll be a scene next week when Martin Gibson wanders into Barrow with a bacon sandwich for lunch. Yep, I think that's pretty accurate, Brian. In silver, Mel Parker at Mel Parker Mel. The feds? He means Harrison! And in gold position, Eliza Bennett at Eliza Bennett 3. While I am prepared to die on the hill of the NHS being there to treat absolutely anyone, I will consider an exception for Nobdemort.
4: Thank you for that, Jen. And congratulations to all who were mentioned in this week's roundup, but especially those medal winners in bronze, Brian Holding, at Buggy Swires, in silver, Mel Parker, at Mel Parker Mel, and in gold, Eliza Bennett at Eliza Bennett 3. And
3: don't forget, we're, we're also on Instagram as at Dumpty Dum, which is run by the very lovely Katie. So do follow us there and include the hashtag Dumpty Dum if you make an Instagram post that you think might be interesting for our Dumpty Dum family.
4: Before we finish, I want to flag up one more thing you could do. We've been contacted by Don Biazzi, who is a master's student studying social anthropology at the University of Edinburgh. He's currently writing his dissertation looking at how audiences engage with the Archers. He set up a questionnaire about the programme and would be delighted if Archers listeners were willing to complete it. I'll put a link to the questionnaire in the show notes. Next week, your hosts are Philippa and Katie. They'll be recording on Saturday morning, so please get your calls in by midnight on Friday, UK time.
3: And it just remains for me to say thank you to Stephen for being gentle with me for my first podcast experience and to say thank you to all our contributors to our social media supremos and as ever we also thank Shambridge for her voices and our podcasting parents Lucy V. Freeman and Royfield Brown <stamina grooves>